chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, a behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fighting back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nursed for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Father, we need your help uh, this morning in discerning uh, these apocalyptic pictures, these metaphorical images. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us the great victory of our Savior and King. We thank you, Father, that we understand today the great conflict that we are a part of, the war that wages all around us. And Father, I pray that we might be those who overcome, who conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Father, give us grace today. Teach us. Open our minds and our hearts. Give us obedience. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So what I believe you have in chapter 12, and again, every chapter in Revelation probably has all kinds of different views, but what I am firm about is that chapter 12 represents what I would call world history in one chapter, okay? I think what you have in chapter 12 is you have the history of the world uh, combined into one chapter. It's kind of interesting that Revelation 12 sort of it breaks up the two kind of halves of Revelation, the two parts of Revelation, and I think it's kind of strategically placed right in the middle as a summary of uh, all that will take place uh, in the kingdom of God from beginning to end. Um, I think what you have is is almost a Sports Center highlight reel. Anybody watch Sports Center? Kind of the you know. I, to me, it's better than the games. I don't watch it a lot, but you know, instead of like watching a whole game, you, you turn on Sports Center and they give you like the 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 end of the the end of the game. Like here's what happened, and then they kind of go back and and they give you a few of the highlights, and then they kind of go back again and kind of wrap up with the uh, the coach's uh, parting thoughts. You know, and so you you, you kind of have the game replayed three different times, three different ways, three different glimpses, okay? That's kind of what you have in Revelation 12. You have three distinct sections here that are all, I believe, describing to you the the world history, the world events played out uh, in our time, in the past, in the present, and in the future with great encouragement as we see who is the victor. Now, what you have beginning, the two kind of major kind of pictures or metaphors or descriptions here, is you've got the devil who's described as a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, okay? And, and the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns is pitted against a pregnant woman in labor and a baby, Okay? Now, does anybody see that right away that's, to some degree, a, a little bit lopsided, right? Uh, that, that, there, there's an underdog situation here that is very prevalent in the Bible. We were at Falls Creek this past week, and I got a big kick out of uh, our third softball game. Uh, our kids were mainly younger kids, uh, mainly 7th and 8th graders, and uh, not, none of them were very big kids. In fact, I would say the average weight... Okay, if you, if you took all of our kids and averaged the weight on our softball team, would have been about like 110 pounds, 115 pounds, something like that. Well, we, we played this team uh, from Oklahoma City. It was all African-American guys, real nice guys. They were all probably, um, some of them were as big as Tony, uh, and, and all of them were significantly bigger than me, which I know is not a lot, but I mean, probably their average weight was around 200 pounds, Okay. And, uh, I mean, it was a funny, I had Andrew taking pictures because he had Matt Ogden, you know, who's like, you know, he's about like this and, you know, weighs, I don't know, 100 pounds, real good athlete, but, you know, just, just a young guy, seventh grader, I think. And, and so you got him on second base. The second baseman is probably about 250, okay? And so it was just kind of funny, you know, to see him out there. And I, I had to leave early to go uh, play volleyball and I was walking past their dugout and one of their friends had come up and, and, and the guy says to their team, they're batting, and he says to their team, he says, are you guys playing a bunch of fourth graders, you know? And, and the guy responds back and he says, yeah, and they're beating us. And we were, you know, our kids were beating them. We had some really good ball players. And, uh, but it was, it was that underdog situation. If you just walked up, you'd be like, oh man, those poor kids are getting creamed, you know? But, but that actually is not the case. Listen, one of the things you're going to see all through the Bible is God loves 
to stack the odds in ridiculous ways and then obliterate the foe, okay? I mean, you, you have a pregnant woman in labor. There, there is, there's nothing more helpless as far as fighting a battle than a pregnant woman in labor. I mean, a pregnant woman in labor, she can't do any. I mean, it, I, I've been with my wife five different times. It takes everything she's got. I mean, every drop of energy just to get that baby out. You know, that's all. She's not doing anything else. She's not multitasking. She's not cleaning while she's in labor. No, I mean, she, she's helpless here. And then you have this male infant child child, okay, against a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. That's the way Satan is depicted in his power and ferocity, okay? And God loves to stack the odds that way for his glory. You find that all through the Bible. You got David and Goliath. You got one of my favorite stories, Gideon. Remember Gideon's going out to battle and God's like, whoa, 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 stop, stop. You got way too many guys. You know, thin them out, man. You got too many. You got, no, thin them out again. He thins them out several times. You know, he's like, all right, now you just got this little bitty tiny army against this great big guy. Yep, just right. That's what I want. God's like, that's what I want. I, I want the odds to be stacked against us so that all will see my power and glory. Because when the odds are impossible, it gives demonstration for our God who does the impossible. Okay, that, that's what you're going to see throughout the Bible. And so you have this scene set up in heaven. And, and these are the two kind of kind of uh, uh, against one another is this great dragging the Satan against the woman and her infant child. Now, let's get a little world history here, okay? The first thing we see in chapter 12 about the dragon is in verse 4. It says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, okay? Now, what we, what we see in the scriptures is that there was uh, a rebellion in heaven, but led by Satan, led by the devil, uh, against God, who he exalts himself against God. He does not want to submit to God or submit to God's authority. In fact, he wants to be God. And then he takes with him a, a host of fallen angels who would become demons, okay? So if we look in the book of Jude, it's the book right before Revelation, Jude chapter 1, verse 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness unto the judgment of the great day. In Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 4, says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to, committed to, committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Those verses say uh, pretty much identical things, and they're describing angels who rebel against God. And by the way, I think the point of both of those verses is if God didn't spare those angelic beings, those fierce, powerful, mighty beings, if they could not escape the judgment of God when they rebelled, then we would be ridiculously silly to think that we can escape the judgment of God when we rebel. I think that's the point of both of those passages, but they do describe this, this, this rebellion against God and this falling of the devil and his angels. And so I believe that's what verse 4 is. I believe verse 4 describes this, this cosmic thing that happens in the heavens in, in, in eternity past where the devil falls and he sweeps down with him a third of the heavenly hosts down to earth. Okay, So verse 7 describes a war in heaven okay, between Michael and his angels uh, fighting against the dragon and his angels. Notice here again that it's not God fighting against them because if God fights against them, it's not really a fight, you know? I mean, it's just over, okay? But it's, 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 
Michael, it's the archangel, and he still wins, okay? But notice it's not God, it's Michael and the, and the angels fighting against the dragon and, and his angels, okay? So there's this, this, this battle, okay? And, and the dragon and his angels are defeated, and they are cast down out of heaven in, onto earth, okay? So now their, their, their domain, I guess you could say, is earth, um, it would appear that, that these fallen angels for a certain time have some freedom on earth uh, according, to, again, as we looked at in the book of Job, only as much as God will allow them, only as much as God will give them, but some freedom to inflict damage and difficulty upon man. Okay, go back up to verse 4. Uh, it says, the dragon sought to devour the child of the woman. So verse 4 says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven, cast them on the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, the child is Jesus, the Messiah, the awaited deliverer, the Savior, the King of Kings. Okay, uh, notice um, verse 5 says she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. If you go into Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, I will, tell you of, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will, I will make the nations your, inherit, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. That is the one who is in Psalm 2 is to break the nations with the rod of iron. And so the woman gives birth to Jesus, to the Messiah, and the dragon seeks to devour the child. Now, who is the woman? Well, there, here's where we get a little bit of a varied interpretation uh, a lot of people say it's Israel. Now, is there, is there support for that? I think there is um, support for that. Israel at Micah 4.10, I believe. I don't think we have it on the screen, but it talks about Israel in travail, she, like a pregnant woman. Um, the whole uh, later on where, where the woman is, is swept up by the, the wings of the eagle, we find in Exodus 19.4-6 through 6, uh, about the exodus that God describes his deliverance of, of Egypt on the wings of eagles. Many of you, one of your favorite verses is Isaiah 40.31 that says, um, uh, I lost it. Uh, yeah, there you go. But what, those who wait on the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not fade. So that, that's a, a common image in the Old Testament. So very well could be Israel. Uh, Israel is the mother of the Messiah in the sense of God chose Abraham, made an, a, a nation of Jacob. Okay, and then, then through Israel was to come the anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. So in a real way, Israel is the mother of, of the Messiah. Uh, in a more specific way, it could be Mary. Uh, a lot of people think that they interpret the woman here as Mary. Um, I think it's almost like saying the same thing in two ways, because Mary is the Israelite woman through specifically who the Messiah would come. So you have the mother Israel, and then you have Mary, uh, the Israelite, who is actually the mother of the Lord. So either, either way, uh, the interpretation really is the same. Some people actually think it's the church, and they're, they're focusing on the third uh, section there, uh, her offspring. Uh, I, I, I go with probably Israel, Mary. Uh, I think that's, that's who the woman is. But, but it's basically the one who's to bring forth the Messiah. Okay, And, and what we see here is that, that Satan seeks to... to 
to stop the plan of God, to stop the messianic line. Um, you know, if you came to our God story uh, last August and last April, I think we did, we did that in April and August, we did the whole God story, kind of the whole Bible in four weeks. And, and what you saw there was God's incredible promise that he makes to bring the Messiah, to save the world. And then everything that's happening in the Old Testament is, is this, 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 this satanic plan to try to, try to stop the Messiah and God's victory uh, over, over not only evil, but also over the failings of his people to bring forth the Messiah. Okay, and so, so this, let me give you a couple examples of that. So you got Pharaoh. What's Pharaoh try to do? He just tries to destroy all the male children of Israel, right? He tries to genocide, put, it, put all the boys to death, uh, throw them in the Nile. A lot of people think that's the, the water image in that third section there. I, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but, 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 but you have Pharaoh destroying all the male children of Israel. You have Saul trying to kill David through whom the Messianic line would, would come. You have Haman. The whole book of Esther is basically a book of, 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 of evil trying to, to commit genocide upon the Israelite people. I mean, Haman wants to extinguish, he wants to wipe out all the Israelites, all the Jewish people. You have when Jesus is born, you have a wicked King Herod. He kills all the babies in Bethlehem. I mean, how wicked do you got to be to kill all the babies in a town trying to get to the Messiah? Okay, and so, so you have this, this evil, wicked plan, this dragon, this demonic you know, plan to try to stamp out or stomp out the messianic line, the Savior who is to come, who would defeat, ultimately defeat the dragon and his hosts. Okay, so you have the devil actively seeking to destroy God's people and God's plan to bring forth forth a savior because the devil hates God. He hates his people created in the image of God, and he hates the plan of God to bring glory to his name through a, through saving a people. Now, verse 17, go down, we'll kind of go to the end here. It says, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Okay, so when the dragon is not able to destroy G, when he's not able to destroy the people of God, and then he's not able to destroy the Messiah, okay, he becomes furious, right? You guys know how it is when all your plans are, are thwarted, right? Like you, you have this plan, you, 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 and it's thwarted, and it's thwarted, and you can't get it done. You, it doesn't work out for you, right? That, that's the devil. He can't, he can't kill the people of God. He can't kill the Messiah. The Messiah lives. Not only does the Messiah live, but he's caught up to God. He, he, he lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. He's resurrected and ascends into heaven. He's caught up to God, all right? And so now he turns his wrath, his fury, verse 17, to the, to, to the woman's offspring. And who are, who are the woman's offspring? Well, it tells us specifically, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I'm trusting that is many of us in this room today, right? That's who the, 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 the devil's wrath turns to. He can't get the people of God. He can't get the Messiah. And so now he makes war on the rest of her offspring. And this conflict between the woman and her offspring and the serpent and the dragon and the devil, that, that's the conflict of history. That's really the big conflict, big C, that every other small conflict really comes from. The course of human history is chiseled out according to the dragon attempting to destroy the woman, the child, and finally her offspring and failing in all three. And so the devil is making war, specifically in verse 17, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And notice his activity is ramped up as, as time goes on, because what does verse 12 say? Because it says he has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. 
He knows he has a limited opportunity. What happens when your time gets shorter and shorter? Your activity gets greater and greater, right? When you leave on vacation, have you ever noticed that? Like when you leave on vacation, you know, it starts out kind of as a, a little busy time. And as the time grows shorter and shorter and shorter, right before you leave, it is this frantic just running, you don't even want to go anymore, it's not worth it, right? Have you, have you noticed that? And just because, why? Why is that? Because your time's short. You have this limited, I mean, you got to get it done by this time. you got to get all this in by this time. And, and so it depicts the devil, you know, feeling this pressure of the shortness of time and wanting to inflict maximum damage upon the people of God. And so how does he make war Upon us, okay? So verse 17 includes us here, the rest of our offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That ought to be us. That ought to be you today, okay? And so the devil is is making war upon you. How does he make war? Well, let's go back in the passage and let's look at the names of the devil because I think the names of the devil tip us off as to how he makes war against the offspring of the woman or the church, believers, God's people today. Okay, so verse 9, let's start there. And the great dragon was thrown down, and then notice how it describes him, that ancient serpent. Okay, now the ancient serpent tips us off to Genesis 3, right? So we go all the way back to the beginning. Ancient is all the way back to the beginning, beginning of the Bible, to the fall. Okay, so God creates Adam and Eve, places them in a garden paradise with perfect fellowship with God and with each other. There's no sin, no death, no bitterness, no violence, no lies, no jealousy, no sickness, no tragedies, no disasters. Joy to the full as they walk with God and they love one another and Satan hates that. Why does he hate that? Again, he's been cast down. He's, he's led this rebellion against God. He's been defeated, all right? And so he hates God. He hates he's lost his place. He wants to, he wants to stop the mission of God, the plan of God, the, 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 the saving nature of God. And so what does he do? He goes to Adam and Eve, and he tempts them, and he tempts them with lies, okay? If you know the story of Genesis 3, you basically know that what the devil does there is he lies to him. God has told him very clearly, hey, you can eat of all the garden. You know, everything here is yours except this one tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you'll die. Satan comes to him in verse 4, and the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, what is he implying there? God has lied to you. You can't trust God. God doesn't know what's best for you. God doesn't have a good plan for you. He goes on to tell the woman in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he makes attractive rebellion against God. He's, he's basically saying you can't trust God. God doesn't have a good plan for you. What you can, who you can trust is me, and I'm telling you, do what you want to do. Do this, and you'll be your own God. He's really tempting them to be their own God. You know, I really think at the heart of all atheism and agnostics and secularists, here's what I believe. They're going to tell you that they're an atheist because they've looked at the evidence. They're going to tell you that they're an atheist because, because they, they've examined the world evidence and they, they've come to the intelligent conclusion that, that, that all this is a cosmic accident. You know, it all just randomly happened to fall together. In the, I, I just don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. 
I think that's ridiculous that a person would look around at our world and say, all of this is a huge accident that just happened to come together and stay together and sustain together and run perfectly for all this history of time. I just don't believe that anybody looks at it and says, that's the evidence. You know what I believe? I believe people say, I don't want a God. I want to be my own God. I want to call the shots. I don't want anybody to be authority over my life. I want to do what I want to do. And therefore, I'm going to say whatever i got to say. I'm going to skew the evidence. I'm going to look at the evidence. I'm going to be deceived in whatever way that I need to be deceived in order to work out that I can be my own God. I think it's the original lie of Genesis 3. I think it's what he's saying in verse 5. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God. That's what he's, that's what he's pitching to him. You can be your own God. Nobody can tell you what to do. You can do whatever you want to do. Do whatever your flesh wants. Do whatever your sinful desire wants. You do whatever you want. You can justify it as right. That's what our world does today. Man, I won't go into the freaky examples you see in the news these last couple weeks. But, but, but the world just does whatever they want. And then they say it is right. And anybody who disagrees with it is wrong. What is that? That's, that's trying to be your own God. And so the serpent tempts them to sin. It works. Adam and Eve fall into sin. They disobey God. They fall into misery and death. And that is how Satan makes war. Now notice, okay, he's not only the ancient serpent. It's called the devil, the Satan. But notice the end of verse 9. The deceiver of the whole world. Okay, so the Bible emphasizes to us here that he's continuing to do this. This is not a one-time event in Genesis 3. No, that's his strategy now. He's spreading lies. He is deceiving the whole world. He hates you. He wants to hurt you. He wants to inflict maximum damage upon your life. He wants, you to, keep, he wants to keep you from God, keep you from joy and peace and righteousness and truth. And so what he's going to do is he's going to deceive you. And his deceptions are, are worldwide. In other words, he has is, he is, he is woven lies throughout the world in such a way that the Bible says it's blinding even. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan wants to so lie and deceive that, that, that he blinds people. They can't see the truth. All they see is lies. It's almost as if he's, he's woven all these lies, bombarded them with so many lies that they can't see the truth out there because they're bombarded with the lies. Now, one of the things that helps, Revelation 12 helps us with, is seeing this strategy. Okay, I can't emphasize that enough. If someone's trying to deceive you, if you have a heads up that that's happening, that, that's really to your advantage, isn't it? If you go in to buy something and you know, man, this guy's trying to trick me. Okay, that, that's a huge advantage, isn't it? Uh, I mean, that, that you got a heads up when you know, all right, there's, there are lies coming at me. I need to be ready for them. I need to be watching for the deception. And I need to try to test everything against what is true. You see, we, we, should, we should, to some degree, be really skeptical people. In, in the sense of, we should always be ready for lies. We should, be know, we should know that, that, that lies are coming at us. That we're going to be very tempted to justify our sin. Very, very tempted. The lies that Satan's going to pitch, they're going to sound appealing. They're going to sound reasonable. They're, they're going to resonate with our sinful flesh. They're going to seem wise at times. These lies are going to be so woven, so craftily. Satan's been doing this for thousands of years. That, that, that when you latch onto them, the world around you is going to go, man, you, you are smart. Man, you, you've really got it. 
You, you're, you're really on top of things. These lies will be great at justifying our sin, making us feel okay about our sin. Man, the, the devil wants that. And so, so, Christians, unless we're immersed in his word, in the truth, and holding your life up to it, you will be deceived. That's what he's doing. He is the deceiver, verse 9, the deceiver of the whole world. Okay? Who else is he? Verse 10. He's the accuser of the brothers. Verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of, of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan continually points out the failings of the people of God. There's a couple great passages. I'm not going to look at Job because we just went through the book of Job, and so hopefully that's fresh in your mind. But you, you can re- recall that, right? How, how that's the way Job begins is, is Satan, you know, Job, or God's like, hey, have you considered my, my, servant Satan, or my servant Job? And Satan's like, oh, yeah, sure, that guy obeys you. You've made him rich, and he doesn't have any problems, and he's healthy, and he's got a beautiful family. And, but if you do this, he'll curse you. In other words, Satan's saying, no, Job is not really a guy of integrity. Job does not really love you. Job does not really he wouldn't stand steadfast if you took away these things in Zechariah the little minor prophet Zechariah we we see this picture again Zechariah chapter 3 talks about the high priest Joshua says then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him and the Lord said to Satan the Lord rebuke you O Satan the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you is it is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, Behold, I've taken away your, your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And, and man, we have this beautiful picture of, of Joshua, the, the, the high priest, standing before the Lord, and his garments are all filthy. He's a sinner. And who's right there? Satan. What's he doing? Accusing. Man, he delights in the filthiness of Joshua. And the Lord steps in and purifies Joshua, gives him new garments. He says, what do you think of this now? <laughs> I mean, that, that's the picture in Zechariah. That, that, that is what Satan does. Satan spotlights the failings of God's people. He constantly points out the ways in which God's people don't measure up their failings. He ignores the work of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the forgiveness of Christ or their adoption or redemption or justification or atonement through Christ's glorious work on the cross. Satan does not bring that stuff up. Okay? He will not bring up the Holy Spirit. What he will do is he will tempt believers to sin. He will, he will lie about sin. He'll deceive them about sin. And, and once the believer bites on the sin and takes the bait and sins against God, he's right there to scream condemnation. I mean, how, how, uh, how wicked is that? You know? I mean, just picture somebody, picture a parent. You know? The kid knows you're not supposed to have any cookies before dinner. And the parent's like, yeah, but don't you want the cookies? He puts them all out in a row on the table. Don't they look good? Aren't they great? I'm sure no one would care. And then the parent kind of steps around the corner and the kid takes the cookie and the parent runs over there and screams at him and whips him, you know? I mean, that's what Satan does. You know, he tells you it's not a big deal. You know, he deceives you. He lies about the sin. And then as soon as you take the bait, he's right there to say, you're filthy. You're worthless. 
You don't deserve God. You don't deserve heaven. You shouldn't pray. You shouldn't go to church. You shouldn't teach a class. How can you dare get up in front of people? How can you, how can you help a VBS when you've done what you've done? I mean, that's what Satan does. He's the accuser of the brother. Now, what we have in the scriptures, though, is this beautiful picture of when the work of Jesus is completed. All right, so Jesus goes to the cross for us. He dies on the cross. He's put in the tomb. He's raised on the third day. He's exalted into the heavens. And what does he do in the heavens? This is so good. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that, if you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Remember when we went through 1 John, we talked about this word advocate. We, we've got a lawyer. We've got a mediator. We've got one who stands in our place with the Father, at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 1, 2, or 2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, listen to this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And, and the Bible tells the believer listen this is who you have in heaven you have jesus standing at the right hand of god in the heavens and what is he doing he's appealing on your behalf he is presenting your case before the father he's presenting himself okay he's he's continually presenting himself to the father as payment for your sins okay as you when you sin he presents himself as your advocate as you confess your sin and repent of your sin and turn to him he presents himself to the father as the payment for your sin and so you have satan yes accusing but you have jesus the advocate jesus the righteous one jesus your mediator your intercessor presenting himself before the father now, I want to deviate for just one second because I tell you, this hit me hard when, when I thought about it. Which one of those are you more like, Jesus or Satan, in regard to the church? Which are you more like? Are, are you one who continually points out the failings of the church? Or are you one who relentlessly points to the work of Jesus on behalf of the church? I read an article this week that talked about you know, how do, how do you speak of other believers? How do you speak of your church? You know, and are you, are you the person that's always, you know, well, you see how they did announcements, you know? Michelle had to correct Pastor Andrew. He didn't know where vacation Bible school was. Sure, he's only had three hours of sleep last week, but can you believe it? You know, are you that guy? Or are you the one who relentlessly points to the work of Jesus on behalf of your brothers. I couldn't help but think of the book of James. James has two great passages about this, very convicting passages. Listen to this. James 4, 11 and 12 is the first one. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? James chapter 5, the next chapter. Verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And I couldn't help but think, how, how do you, are you more like the devil? Or are you more like Jesus? Are you an accuser of the brethren? Or are you an advocate? Are you a mediator? 
Are you one who, who, who not tries to, listen, I don't think we should ignore the sins of the church. That's not what I'm saying. A thousand times, no. We should speak truth and love. We should restore the sinning brother. We should plead for repentance. We should bring back the wonder. All those are biblical concepts. We should love enough to warn and pray and plead and weep. And I think you know you're doing this well when your heart is broken. And you're continually presenting the work of Jesus on behalf of your brothers. If you have some sort of sick satisfaction with pointing out the sinful failings of others. By the way, you know what the word for gossip is in Greek? Diabolos. Same word for devil. It's interesting, isn't it? Satan is attacking the church. Now, the good news is we shall overcome. Okay? How? How shall we overcome? Look at verse 11. And they have conquered. They have conquered how? They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. What a great verse. Let's talk about those three things real quickly. By the blood of the lamb. Just as we saw last week in chapter 5, the victory is won by Jesus' death. By Jesus humbling himself. He wins through death. He wins through being crucified. He wins through being beaten and mocked and scourged and crucified. Jesus wins it all for us all through his death. All those sins that Satan accuses us of, now they are paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. By the infinite value of the person of Jesus Christ. His value is sufficient payment for the price of all of our sins. Without the blood of the Lamb, there'd be no people of God. There'd be no people worthy enough to be in the kingdom of God. God would be a king without a kingdom. Satan would hold sway over all of mankind. But by the blood of the Lamb, we can be righteous through His righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a great verse. I think we looked at it last week, maybe. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin cannot be held against us because the blood of Jesus has paid the price. It has paid for our sins. We stand upon the gospel. Pastor Andrew did such a fantastic job this week at Falls Creek just portraying every day to the kids in our cabin the glorious picture of Jesus Christ's work. Each day we had kind of an, uh, a different a different picture of the cross, a different picture of what Jesus did for us. One of my, one of my favorites, two of my favorites, one of my favorites was uh, um, one day we talked about substitution, how Jesus takes our place. He takes our place. He bears our sins. He pays our payment. And, and so Andrew, Andrew had money and, and, and he bought everybody an icy. He didn't buy it, but Jason Alexander did. Jason Alexander bought the icy by doing continual push-ups for everybody. Okay, so, so he had to do two push-ups. There's about 50 people in our cabin. He had to do two push-ups, ne- never resting, two push-ups for everybody. So, so Logan would go to each kid and he would say, you know, would you like an icy? And then they would say, yeah. And he would give them $2. And, and, and then Jason would have to do two push-ups. And here's the thing. Some of the kids, you know, you always got these kids. Some of the kids were like, no, I don't want one. And he was like, okay. And Jason would still do the push-ups though, you know. He would still pay the price. 
And so by the end, it was great because I don't know if you ever tried to do 100 push-ups slowly, you know, after each, if you're holding yourself up. By the end, his arms are, are trembling and, and he's shaking. And each kid, you could tell, you know, they're, they're really getting it now. As they say yes, he pays the price. And then they get what he paid for. And then we talked about Jesus paying the price for your filth, your iniquity, your sin, your rebellion. The next day we played the game Lockup, one of my favorite games. I don't know that I have time to explain it to you, but it's a great picture of union with Christ. It's a great picture of, of being joined to Jesus where no one can, can tear you apart. We stand upon the gospel. I was sharing the gospel with a young man this week, a young man, grade school boy. And I tell we went through sin, we went through, we went through the Trinity, we went through sin, we went through um, the cross. And as we got to the cross, he knew about the cross, he knew Jesus had died, but he really didn't understand why. And as we ta- started talking about Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty for the wrong things that you had just said you've done. And as we talked about someone taking your punishment, and we, we used an illustration of, 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 of him misbehaving at school and having this this paddling coming and his friend stepping in and taking the paddle. And as, as that began to click, he did, he did this. He said, wow, 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 three times. That's what you should say. Wow. Verse 11. We have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Second of all, by the word of their testimony. Your testimony of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what he will do for all who put their trust in him. That's how we conquer, church. That's how, that's how the kingdom goes forward. Satan, now Satan knows this. He knows that by your communication of the truth of the gospel, the kingdom advances. And so what's the accuser of the brethren going to do? He's going to accuse. You're not worthy to speak biblical truth. You don't know enough. You'll get it wrong. You've not lived a good enough life. You can't speak good enough. You won't do a good job. Every time you share with a friend the testimony of God's grace and Christ's work in your life, you're attacking the gates of hell. Every time you proclaim the person and the work of Jesus to a co-worker, you fire around in the cosmic battle. Every time you explain the cross to a child, you launch a missile into the demonic ranks. Every time you preach a sermon or teach a Sunday school lesson or share the gospel in vacation Bible school or team kids, you are pressing against the darkness. This is how evil will be overcome. This is how the devil will be defeated. This is how the kingdom will come, how the people of God will be kept and preserved by the word of your testimony, by the spoken word of truth, by the word of that, that, that you bring about the cross to your block and to your work and to your school and to the suburbs of Phoenix and the boroughs of New York and the villages of Guatemala and the slums of India and the cities of China and the skyscrapers of Japan and the mud huts of Africa, we shall overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. How can that not make you want to do battle? How can that not make you want to take 
uh, two minutes between church and Sunday school, get on your phone and text the gospel to a friend. Or text the truth about Jesus. How can that not make you want to come back at noon to vacation Bible school and say, Hey, I mean, I can't make it every night, but I want to show up one night. Would you let me be in a class? Could I exalt Jesus? Could I press against the darkness? This is how we overcome. And the spirit by which we overcome is in, again, verse 11. For they love not their lives even unto death. You know what will keep us from this? When we love our lives more than Jesus. When we love our things more than Jesus. When we love our comfort more than Jesus. When we love our position more than Jesus. Psalm 63.3 says, Because your steadfast love is better than life, so my lips will praise you. Matthew 16.24 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life, for my sake, we'll find it. Not all of us will be martyred. There's a lot in Revelation about martyrs, by the way. We've, we've skipped some of it already, but some great stuff. But, but all of us should have the conviction that Jesus is better. He's better than my, anything else in my life. I love not my life even unto death. In other words, I, I, will, I, will, I will be on this mission I will claim the blood of Christ and I will share my testimony no matter the cost. Even unto death. Do you see that we win? By the way, I'm a simple guy. You guys have, you've read, people are giving me books on Revelation now. I appreciate that. I'm not going to read them right now, but you know, thanks for giving them. Um, I, I, not not because I don't want to, just I, I have a limited amount of time. And uh, someday I'll probably get around to them. But, so you've got all kinds of complicated theories and everything. But it, it, here's my view of Revelation. Jesus wins. Do you see that? How, how can you not get that from chapter 12? <laughs> he wins. Doesn't matter if he's an infant. Guarded by a pregnant woman. Attacked by a dragon with seven, seven heads and ten horns. He still wins. And his people will win. By the gospel. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. By loving him more than life. He will win. Father, we thank you for that victory. We thank you, Jesus, that we stand upon the confidence of your shed blood, your work on our behalf that is fully sufficient to give us victory in this battle. Father, I pray, I pray, God, that you would open our hearts and minds to embrace your victory, to stand in your victory, to walk in your victory, to live in your victory. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name.